You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. Second City is back open for live shows, in-person classes, and customized corporate workshops and performances. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. You can go online and find out all the information you need at secondcity.com. Wow, this was a really, it's a great book and a great conversation. Uh, J.J. Van Bavel uh, is an associate professor of psychology and neuroscience at New York University an affiliate at the Stern School of Business in Management and Organizations, and director of the Social Identity and Morality Lab. Uh, He and his uh, longtime friend and colleague, Dominic Packer, have written a new book, and that book's called The Power of Us, Harnessing Our Shared Identities to Improve Performance, Increase Cooperation, and Promote Social Harmony. So there's like nerdy academic stuff, but there's things about sports. He and, and Dominic went to um, Ohio State, and there's this great story about that. So, really, I, I, I hope you enjoy this uh, pod as much as I enjoyed talking to Jay. The Second City is a world famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the Yes And. Unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Jay Van Babel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kelly. Um, I'd love to start our conversation with the story that begins your book, um, The Power of Us. And you tell us the story of the Dassler brothers. Uh, who are they and, and why do you start your book with that story? So the very first chapter of our book starts with these two brothers in Germany uh, who started this shoe company when, you know, in the 20s and 30s. And it turned out to be incredibly successful. In fact, they made the shoes that Jesse Owens wore um, when he won multiple gold medals in the Berlin Olympics. And, um, and so these were two brothers, super close, super successful. And then they had a falling out during World War II. Um, there was a story that, you know, one brother was in a bunker and they were getting bombed and the other brother and his family went to jump in. And they, you know, he made a comment. I forget the exact comment. It was something like, oh, the bastards are here again. And um, the one brother thought that was a personal insult and, and, not, you know, a comment about the bombers who were coming. Right. And so it triggered this massive conflict between these two brothers. And so normally, you know, it's nothing unusual to have a sibling rivalry, but this sibling rivalry led to something that led to a fascinating uh, cultural situation in the city where they both worked. So from that point forward, they broke into two different shoe companies, one on the north side of town and one on the south side of town. And um, they never talked to each other, I don't think, until their deaths. In fact, when they died, they had, uh, were each buried on opposite sides of the cemetery. And so their feud went, went to the grave. Um, what was interesting, though, is this town became known as the town of Bent Necks. And it was known uh, for that name because everybody walked around with a bent neck looking down uh, at everybody's shoes. And mm. depending on what shoe you had, you were either a friend or a foe. And so, um, you know... On one side of the river, everybody wore one type of shoe and worked at the one factory. On the other side of the river, everyone wore the other uh, brand of shoe. And so the town became divided and um, it led to this kind of generational conflict. And it was the case where you couldn't go in certain stores or marry or date somebody from across the river because they had the wrong shoes. And we normally think of conflicts over things like religion and nationality, mm-hmm. um, you know, race, like pretty deep rooted things uh, often have long standing conflicts and stereotypes. Um, what was funny about this case is that it was really arbitrary. It was about something really silly, like the shoe you were wearing. 
And it turns out the great part of the story, of course, is that these shoe companies now are among the most famous shoe companies yeah. in the world. So uh, on one side of the river was Puma and on the other side of the river was Adidas. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it's kind of funny. You think of this as these small cobblers in this little village in Germany, but these are now like uh, global, global brands. And so, um, you know, at this point now, after the brothers died, the feud kind of ended and people could, you know, interact in a positive way. Um, but it really shows you something really fundamental about human nature is that, you know, most people were not part of the feud. They were not in the bunker when this happened, but they adopted these identities over the most arbitrary of, of identity symbols, which were shoes, and then discriminated against people in a pretty intense way in their day-to-day life. And that actually is still not necessarily over. Uh, w- when I was a young person, uh, I played uh, in the ethnic soccer leagues here in Chicago, and I was with Schwaben, which is the German club. And our coach made us all wear uh, Adidas, uh, <laughs> if they pronounced it. And like, if he said, like, it was like, nope, not okay. And, and then I wanted to wear these French cleats and it was like, not cool. Uh, and so people really do define themselves by the strangest of, of things. And, yeah. and the, the thing I thought that was really interesting, you have a line uh, where you say, quote, we are at the hearts of our own stories, um, but, th- but these are not fixed. And I mean, this is, and this is, a, I think, kind of a crucial note throughout the book for a variety of reasons, good and bad, uh, is that we tend to think our qualities, our identity is, is fixed. And in fact, like Walt Whitman said, we contain multitudes. Yeah. And so this is, this is something that's true of these people in Germany, you know, um, but it's true of, of, of us. So for example, you know, I'm at work right now, I'm thinking about myself as a professor, or I have mm-hmm. this brand new identity as author, which comes with all these other like weird assumptions about who I am and how I interact with people. Mm-hmm. Um, when I go home, you know, in an hour, I'll pick up my daughter from school and I'm a dad. And all of a sudden I'm just thinking about the world very differently. I'm not focused on like productivity or um, writing or, uh, you know, using an analytic focus, you know, like a scientist, I'm thinking about like how to be there for her and interact with her. Um, In about a week, I'm going to go back to Canada where I'm from. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden my Canadian identity will get triggered. And, uh, you know, this is this thing that happened to a lot of people recently with the Olympics. When you tune into the Olympics, you might not, you know, in in the United States are very polarized between Democrats and Republicans. But when you tune in, you're all mostly cheering for the same people under the same flag and people in other countries are rallied around this too. And so these are really flexible things and it, whatever situation we're in can trigger us to think through different identities. And then once that gets triggered, um, it can change how we think about the world. And so the scope of our book goes from, it changes everything from how you smell and taste foods all the way to how you like organize and generate revolutions of hundreds or thousands of people. And so this aspect of identity really permeates so many parts of our life. It's interesting. I remember when we first started working with the uh, behavioral scientists at the University of Chicago, I was having this conversation with Nick Epley and talking about any studies around highly effective teams um, and, and, and sort of thinking of like Second City. We have these six people on stage who work together for like a year and a half. And there really wasn't. There, there, there's, you know, large scale like one to one or other things. And this idea that we are always in relation to someone else, even if we're alone. Yeah. you know, and whether it's ruminating and, and that is, that's a very powerful new way to look at things, which again, I think, I think is at the heart of this book and why it is so important is because of the cultural crisis we're living in the multiple cultural crises we're living in. And, and you had the benefit of actually writing this amidst all, all of this going on right now. Yeah. I mean, it's been a really uh, strange year. So writing a book during a pandemic is not something I'd recommend, especially if you have small kids at home, um, you're trying to homeschool them too. Um, But it also allowed us to think about how these things are playing out, for example, during the pandemic. And so, you know, one example we talk about is uh, how someone in New Zealand, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Mm -hmm. Ardern, leveraged national identity to rally New Zealanders to do the right thing. And, and uh, you know, last time I checked, only 24 New Zealanders had died during the whole pandemic. Oh. And um, she famously called them her team of 5 million people. And they were so good at, at flattening the pandemic that everything reopened before a vaccine came out just because they had snuffed it out. And um, she also did things that were really signature elements of what we call identity leadership which is effective ways to manage groups and inspire them. And and in the early days after they had flattened the curve of of COVID and stores are reopening, they had all new rules around social distancing and things like that. And she went to get brunch and um, 
the, because they had distance, there weren't as many tables. And so the prime minister shows up for brunch to do a photo op. And you're thinking most restaurants would put an extra chair there or a table and, and get the photo op, right? Um, national news. Um, no, they didn't. They actually were sticking to the rules. And instead of like pulling rank and using her power to be like, you know, or her handlers would be like, you know, Jacinda needs a table now. You know, she wants her yeah. pancakes. Um, she waited outside just like every single other person. And she respected the rules that she had made uh, with her government. And in fact, she was leaving <laughs> um, because there just wasn't room for her. And they, a table opened up and they grabbed her and she came in. But the point of leadership and great identity leadership is that you act as if you're one of the group and you're willing to put yourself at that level and embody and role model the things that you expect of, of your followers. And that what is in, inspires people to feel like part of a shared team with you with this shared purpose and, and make sacrifices uh, that you're asking of them, which is really critical in a pandemic. There's an improv. Uh, it, it's an exercise that was created by Viola Spoll in the mother of all improv called follow the follower uh, that we actually apply in areas of leadership because it's the, the idea being that, Leadership actually isn't hierarchical. It's at any level. And um, Sheldon Patinkin, who was one of our artistic directors in the other days, used to say that the term your team is only as good as its weakest member is kind of bullshit. It's that your team is only as good as its ability to compensate for its weakest member because one of us is going to be the weakest member at some other time. So have that person step in. Way more useful. It gives context to why why groups are important as opposed to individuals. And 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 her her work her her words after Christchurch too were also incredibly powerful, right? Yeah, I mean, so they had a, a really devastating terrorist attack, yes. and and so we've seen how the U.S. has handled these in the past. You know, it's almost the twentieth anniversary of nine eleven, and I was thinking today about you know how could we have handled nine eleven better? Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that nine eleven did is it got rid of polarization at least for a few weeks. So George Bush's approval ratings went from under fifty percent to ninety percent. It's impossible right now to imagine any American president having 90% approval, right, Um, in in, in a period of polarization. But it was pretty polarized then. And it happened because there was an outside threat. And so when there's an outside threat or at least a shared goal, we move up a level of identity instead of seeing ourselves as a member of a party. It's it's our national identity. Um, But And so so that went well for, for Bush. But what he did wrong is he didn't think about the norms of the identity. And so he said things like, you're with us or against us, and we're going to snuff out the terrorist. He didn't really think about what effective norms would be to sustain that type of popularity and common purpose. And so you had hate crimes shoot up in America against Muslims. Um, this happened, of course, during World War II in, in the U.S. and Canada, where you had internment of Japanese Americans, Japanese Canadians who are completely innocent. Um, and so these, we look back on these, and these are kind of like the dark parts of human history. Like we did something morally wrong in those moments. Um, and the key here is that if he had reframed the norms of the group is that we're not going to attack our own. We're not going to attack innocent people or lose their civil liberties. We're going to focus very narrowly on, on stopping these terrorists from doing this. And we have the strength as a group to do it. Um, I think that that would have been more powerful and would have avoided those downsides. And this is something people don't understand about identity. Uh, when we think about identity in groups, we often think of tribalism. That, you know, the moment you identify with one team, you're going to dislike the other team, like the town of Bent Necks, right? Yeah. Um, but the second part of identity is about norms. And if you're if you identify with a group that is inclusive and embraces people who are different um, and is collaborative or cooperative, the more people identify with that group, the more inclusive they become and the more cooperative and, and, and tolerant. Um, and so what matters is not just what you group you identify with, but what the norms of that identity are. And that's where leadership really plays a key role. Uh, pretty early in the book, uh, you have a, a- a section that's like boxed um, and it's about replication. Uh, so when we started working with the behavioral scientists at the University of Chicago, I have this former colleague who was always complaining about replication issues. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, you're thinking and addressing it head on um, and, and so early in the book, because you know you, there's a lot of evidence to back up the things you're talking about. So talk to us a bit about the, the, what people think the replication crisis is and, and how you address it. Yeah, so the replication crisis is really important for anybody to know who's reading a social science book or a psychology book or these pop science books. Um, And so what it means is that some of the studies, when people rerun them, they don't find the same effects. And so you can't really trust it. And by the way, this is not just a social or behavioral science thing. The same thing is happening in cancer research, in biology, in chemistry. The same things are in economics. Same things are happening in every field. That's part of what science is. If someone shows something, someone else should be able to take the same methods and find it in another study. If not, 
you, you abandon it pretty quickly. You know, that's the great thing about science is nothing's dogmatic. Uh, like some, you know, religious belief system, something is the same belief forever. 2000 years later, everybody still believes the same thing. Uh, in science, you want to root out really quickly what's right and what's wrong, separate the wheat from the chaff. Um, but the issue is that we haven't thought about replication in a systematic way in many fields for a long time. And so we're doing it now. And what that means is we're weeding out a lot of stuff. And so what we tried to do with our book was a couple things. We, we tried to do to curate what we thought were the most robust findings, you know, across many labs and many different places. Um, but we also acknowledge that sometimes some things don't replicate. And it might not be because the original study is wrong per se. It might be because things differ in a different context. And so, uh, you know, I, I've studied replications. I've analyzed hundreds of replications and find, mm-hmm. to try to find out what predicts what replicates. And of course, big samples uh, are really good, um, you know, robust measures, strong effects. Um, but another thing that matters is the context. And, and this is the whole point of our book is that context shape identities. And so you can imagine like growing, growing up and someone who's black living in the Jim Crow South, probably race is going to be the only identity you're able to think about most of your day because it determines where you have to drink from a fountain, where you have to sit on a bus, your job opportunities. Um, race is still incredibly important for many people. And we have all kinds of forms of prejudice and segregation. But as you start to erode those things, people have other identities that can come to the fore Um, or they're just able to express their full self at work in a way that they might not have been able to do 10 or 50 or hundred years ago. And so what we have to understand is those things change over time and that's good. Um, But it also means that something you might've found in a study in the 1970s, you know, in a context or in the fifties might not be the same that you'd find in, you know, 2021, or we have a famous study on bankers. So people have this stereotype of bankers, are they trustworthy or not? Um, well, it turns out that um, bankers are no different than you or I in terms of their trustworthiness, unless you prime them with the idea that they're a banker, and then they suddenly get less trustworthy. Um, but that study was run in like Zurich, which is like a banking capital of the world where the stereotype is strong. Someone tried to run it in another study with a different group, and, and it didn't quite find the same effect. So I think that that pattern probably only holds in places like Zurich, maybe in a the financial district of Manhattan, which I live right. pretty close to, um, where there's a strong stereotype that if you're a banker, that you need to cut corners to get ahead and anything goes. Um, when you have cultures like that and people are bankers, they're not necessarily more uh, devious people, but when they're put in that role and you remind them of that identity, it can trigger that in them. There's a couple points in the book where you talk about space and its relationship to identity, which is just so fascinating to me. Uh, uh, one of one of them, you write, quote, people who felt threatened by an out group judge that group as physically closer than people who felt more secure did. And it makes me think sitting here in Chicago and probably you in New York, why we are not like up in arms about the immigrant. The, we're, we're not thinking that there are gypsy caravans coming you know, across the border, aren't. Um, but that's just not an issue for us. And we're so many miles away, whereas people who I know who live closer feel it's, it's a, the, the major issue in their lives. Yeah, so this was this was one thing we found. We did a study with people's perceptions of threat from illegal immigrants. And the more threatened they were by illegal immigrants, the closer they saw Mexico City to the border, the larger the group they thought was coming over the border. Um, and, and so this is something that is actually functional uh, in the biological literature around threat. So there's studies where, for example, they put a tarantula in a box close to you. And if you have like a spider phobia, you think it's actually closer to, to you than it actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, or people with snake phobias have this. And, and so that's adaptive to identify threats. And, and if you see them as a little closer than they are, you can start engaging in a defensive response, get away or prepare an avoidance response. Um, in human history with, with outgroups, that often happens with walls. And so you can, you know, from the Great Wall of China um, to today with the, all the political debates around the wall uh, at the Mexican border are often fundamentally about the threat that people see uh, with these issues. And there's, you know, they have these in Israel, they have these in many countries. Uh, borders or walls are very common when people feel threatened by outgroups. Um, what we found, however, is that this itself is flexible. If you get rid of the threat, people change the perception. So all of a sudden, if you tell them there's a really strong border, um, they no longer have these misperceptions anymore. And mm-hmm. so, again, it's really that if people are threatened and this, and they learn the threat, you know, through lived experience, but a lot of it is learned through like media stereotypes, watching certain news channels or, or talk radio. And if that threat gets fomented or amped up, then people can create these kind of, you know, these, these threats loom larger in their mind. 
But I, I also want to say this is not just around immigration. We ran a similar study uh, with um, baseball fans. We went to Yankee Stadium, mm. you know, and asked them uh, how far away Boston is. <laughs> and Yankees fans, hardcore Yankees fans, thought Boston was closer than it, than it was than compared to non-Yankees fans who kind of had an accurate estimate. Uh, and this was at a time where they were the number one and two teams in their division and their arch rivals. And so, and then we ran another study, where do you want Boston fans to sit in Yankee Stadium? And they all want them to move into the cheap seats. And some people even wanted them out of the stadium, like banned from the stadium or pay more for their ticket to get in. And so this triggers all kinds of discrimination with all kinds of identities. Um, it's really something I think fundamental about the way identity works and, and threat works rather than just something about the immigration issue itself. I'm curious, when you were writing this book, I'm imagining, had the, had the vaccine started happening? Yeah, I think they were just, just starting started. as we were finishing the book. But I, I've been running studies on vaccination since, so I've been thinking All about right. it. So that, that is so much at, at the heart of like, you know, what our daily conversation here, because I work in a theater and we're, we were the first open in Chicago, but, you know, we've had to reduce seating. We just went back to all masks. And I was, I was on a call with a bunch of the other theaters and they're like, the, the couple that are open are like, we're not having any problems at all. And I'm like, well, of course you aren't. You have regular sort of liberal, older theater audiences and we have America because yeah. we're, we're that kind of sort of cultural icon. So 50% of the people think we're horribly irresponsible and 50% of the people think we're just overreacting. So talk to us a bit about like how that plays out with your, with your studies. Yeah, so this is something I've been studying since the start of the pandemic was uh, I wrote an article in the Washington Post, you know, in March of 2020, before almost anybody had even died in the US. And I said, political polarization is going to be potentially very deadly in, in this pandemic. Because if you have two people with different worldviews and see different realities, that might not matter when you're debating like crowd size at an inauguration, like Trump's crowd size versus Obama's. You know, on one, on one hand, who cares about that? Doesn't harm anybody. Or you can have conspiracy theories about things like the Flat Earth Society. You know, these people have podcasts and conferences about Earth being flat. Who cares? It doesn't harm anybody for them to have these belief systems. If you have a belief system that the pandemic is a hoax or that is not dangerous or is just the flu and it's not, um, and half or, you know, 30, 40% of the country is, is under that belief, it's not just deadly to them, but it's deadly to everybody because if yep. they catch it, it spreads. Like you said, everybody walks into Second City to watch a show. It's a you know representative sample of America, yep. or they go on the subway. It spreads to people who who might believe it's really dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, and so we saw that in the early stages with people's perceptions of risk. Republicans thought it was much lower risk than Democrats. And in the early stages, people were saying to me when I was writing about this, "Oh, it's just because you live in New York and you were hit really hard. New York's very dense." You know, this isn't going to be a problem for like South or North Dakota, where it's very spread out. And those are the Republican areas. And I said, I said, yes, it will be. So we ran a study and we looked at, you know, uh, 15 million cell phones across the whole country. And what we found, one of the bi single biggest predictors of whether or not people are engaging in distancing, reducing their movement, um, was whether the county they were in voted for Trump mm -hmm. versus not. And, and then the, in, the more they voted for Trump, the less they distanced. And we thought, well, maybe as the pandemic goes on and, and more people get sick in their, in their states and stuff, they'll follow the guidelines. But if anything, the partisan gap grew bigger over time. Yeah. And then you saw that with mask wearing. Um, and again, Trump himself said it was like a symbol of disloyalty if you wore a mask. You mm -hmm. saw it now with vaccines. I gave a talk at the White House in, in March. And I said the big, single biggest predictor of the polls of anti-vaxxing attitudes is, is uh, political identity. It's bigger than race. It's bigger than age. It's bigger. This is not an issue of education because it's bigger than education. Um, it's bigger than gender. We talk a lot about how important gender is. Those things didn't matter nearly as much as, as your political identity. And that was in March. At the same time, there wasn't really a gap in who was getting vaccinated because people were just running to the front of the line to get vaccinated, and including a lot of Republicans. But once you got to April and we kind of like the people who wanted to get vaccinated really bad got it. All of a sudden, the biggest driver was was political identity. And now almost, you know, all of the people who are hardcore anti-vaxxers are, are Republicans. You still have these mix of like people who just don't trust pharmaceutical companies. They were always there before the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't get their flu shot. They had measles outbreaks in those yeah. communities. And some of yeah. those are like hippie liberal moms, as well as like traditional like Amish communities or, yeah. or Orthodox communities. Um, so that didn't really wasn't really a left right issue before. But now you've layered this left right issue with the identities attached to it and loyalty to leaders and stuff like that. 
and, and it's been, you know, that's why we have a Delta surge um, and other countries like Canada have, even though they're polarized in many ways, they have a liberal party, conservative party, the leaders from both those parties did not polarize this issue. And so they've long surpassed the U.S. in vaccinations, even though they started way behind. They, they hadn't bought as many. And so the U.S. should have uh, it, been it way was bad there for a while. I mean, you know, obviously we have a theater in Toronto. And so I was talking every week with them. They had to wait to that period where it was like we were so bad and they were making fun of us. And then suddenly it was like, what happened? And All my <laughs> Toronto friends were really envious when we got that first three months of vaccines ahead of them. Really. And they were really mad that their government had not bought them. But yep. polarization now has put us behind. And again, Delta spreading, you know, kids schools are going to get shut down. People hospitals are overflowing because of this. I just read today that Florida is worse right now than New York at the height, which is <sighs> incredibly. That's insane. And, and you know, we're, we're 20 months into this, 22 months in. We should know better by now. You yeah, know, this is know. also I want to say the vaccination development as a scientist. This is a Nobel Prize winning achievement to get mm-hmm. vaccines that are this effective and safe in a year mm-hmm. is is outside the scope of anything we've ever done with vaccines before in history. Um, and it's going to save tens of millions of life around the world. People in other countries would be desperate for these vaccines. And then here we have people paying. I saw that people are paying for fake vaccine cards up to $600, like a fake driver's license when you're like yeah. not yeah. of drinking age. Yeah. And so they'd rather pay $600 for a fake vaccine card than get a free vaccine that will save their life and save their whole family and, and colleagues' lives. Yeah, no, I, I have relatives who <laughs> that live in that. I do too. I yeah. do too. <laughs> All right. Uh, so Colin Firth, you like... He's got the looks. He's got the career. He shouldn't be also like really smart. But <laughs> talk to us about that because that's connected to this sort of like the political mind, I guess you would call it. Yeah. Okay, so we're talking about politics, and and since maybe your audience is full of a bunch of actors, um, Colin Firth won, a, won an Academy Award, I believe, for Best Actor of the year. He did uh, The King's Speech, which yeah. is a great movie if you watch. He's a stutter, and mm-hmm. he has to give this crucially important speech during the war, I believe. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, his best of, of all his work, his best life's achievement his best role that same year he was part of this study to look at the brain differences between liberals and conservatives and and if i remember the story he was on a tv show with a neuroscientist uh at university college london Mm -hmm. and they were talking about liberal conservative differences in 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 britain which are a bit different than ours but some similarities and he i think it was colin further just said we just must have different brains because we can't agree on some pretty basic things and so uh, Garrett Rees was the lead neuroscientist on this, and they ran a study to test this, two studies, big studies, uh, really well done. And these are some of the world's leading neuroscientists, by the way. Mm-hmm. And um, Colin Firth collaborated with them, and they looked, and they found that your brain structure is a little bit different if you're conservative or uh, Democrat, or sorry, it's not Democrat or Republican, conservative or liberal yeah. uh, in the UK. And they replicated it in a second large study. And so what that suggested is that a big part of political differences we often, and I've been talking about it, is like leaders and messaging of media. But part of it is bottom up. Part of it is our basic biology, probably from the time we were born, is a little bit different um, across people. And the people with certain types of biologies and brains tend to be attracted to certain types of policies and leaders. They want, you know, a strong leader or mm-hmm. a strong military and keep out outsiders, some people. Other people are more like open to difference. Uh, want to experience different things, travel, uh, you know, live in more diverse areas. And those basic foundational differences manifest in differences in personality and temperament and as they get older into politics. And so the way to think about it is this, you know, we often think our politics is because of what our parents talked about around the dinner table when we were kids. Um, Well, they've done twin studies where they take an identical twin who's your genetic clone and they raise them in different families. They can raise a twin in a conservative family, another Mm -hmm. identical twin in a liberal And when those twins grow up, they're very likely to have the same politics. And so it turns out that your family doesn't matter that much in the environment where you grow up uh, as much as your biology at that stage. Um, And so, you know, the reason our our politics often align with our parents is because of the biological heritage they gave us uh, as just as much as the environment that we were in. They matter about yeah. equally. Biology matters about the same as environment for, for politics. Yeah, because there's a bit of a chicken and egg, you know, what, what yeah. came for. And this also reminded me of the work around loose cultures and tight cultures that that also might, you know, external from the brain that might be part of it. Um, fascinating. Uh, all right. You went to Ohio State uh, with your co-author, correct? Or no? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. we were both in Ohio State. I was there for right. three and a half years. He was there for two years. I remember, uh, again, because I live pretty close to Northwestern when I, when I was growing up, and they were terrible when I was growing up. And But I would always go see Ohio State because these teams 
in the 70s and the 80s were unbelievable. Um, but then they weren't good for a while. Um, and and I, I think, you know, we all know about the sort of iconic stickers uh, that are on, on the helmets. I did not know the story you tell in the book, which I'd love you to share. It's okay. So one of the, be- this is one of the, I think I love college football. I, I went to Ohio State and they get 110,000 people in for the games and it's just a spectacle of identity. I love it. And, um, and these people are hardcore lifelong fans and their kids become fans if they're a fan and their kids, kids. And so it's this great multi-generational thing. And so in the sixties, uh, Ohio state was the best team in the country. They won a lot of national championships and a very famous coach, uh, Woody Hayes. And he started the, his team's uh, coaching staff started this tradition where the best players in the team, we get a sticker on to put on their helmet after each game of the Buckeye, which is the state tree, but it's also the name of the team, the Ohio state Buckeyes. And at the end of the year, you'd see the superstar quarterback or running back or, or defensive players would run out onto the field to a hundred thousand fans and their hat, their helmets would be covered in Buckeye stickers. And that meant they were like the most intense, gnarliest, uh, successful players, the stars. And they did that for many years. And the team went from like this juggernaut superstar with all these advantages in history and recruiting advantages. But by the 80s, it had really started to become mediocre and was a 500 team, despite all these advantages. And then they fired the coach in the 90s and they replaced him with a new coach who came in and was looking around at the culture that they had created. And the new coach um, was Jim Tressel. Uh, his nickname was The Vest because he was wore a sweater vest. Very, very nerdy, straight-laced guy. And um, he thought that this was a problematic part of the culture, that giving them and highlighting the superstars on the team was not as important as highlighting team success. And so he changed the way they gave out stickers after a game. So if the offense scored above a certain amount of points, um, everybody on the offense would get a Buckeye sticker. If the team won, everybody on the team would get a sticker. You know, if the defense got an interception, instead of just the player who got the interception, they assume that's a defensive play because someone was pressuring the quarterback and so forth. Everybody on the defense gets a sticker. And so he was trying to reward collectives, you know, the offense, the defense, special teams. But my favorite one was the whole team got a sticker if they won, including if you never left the sidelines. And, mm-hmm. and who knows what the players that don't leave the sidelines do, but they're probably helping behind the, the, the scenes, revving everybody up, probably in practice all week. They play a key role. And within the next year, they uh, won the national championship. And since that time that he implemented that, they've been the second best team in all of college football. I think Alabama is the only one better. And so, and that's across four different coaches. And so what he did was he did something that was really simple. They're not even paying these people money, but they're changing the incentives, signaling what's what's valued and thinking about it at a collective level, not just an individual superstar level. And across four now different coaching staffs and uh, 20 years, They've uh, had a continued, almost unprecedented run of success. And so that's one of my favorite stories about thinking about culture and teams and organizations. We were really great. And I'm in science in academia. You know, we spend a lot of money to hire the superstars, but some superstars come in and they have sharp elbows, hoard all the resources and everybody else suffers. Um, What you want is people who lift everybody else up. And, And we don't often think about how to recruit those people and how important they are. Did you ever hear the story uh, of the rule Joe Madden imposed the year before the Cubs won the World Series if a player got in trouble? Uh, so if you, if there, you violated something or did something bad, uh, you came to his office. Uh, he had a big bowl with white pieces of paper. You pulled it out. On there was an expensive bottle of wine. You went and bought the wine, came back, and you drank it with him while you talked. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that reminds me of um, one of my favorite stories is uh, the San Antonio Spurs coach, Greg Popovich. Oh, love Pop. He's famous for after his after games and stuff, oh, buying no. these bottles of wine, having these big team dinners. Mm-hmm. And he, I think, in, in the NBA is the only coach who has had a record of winning up something like 100 games or more over and above what you'd predict, given the talent of his team. So yeah. he's doing something, adding something to the chemistry of his team over time that's allowing them to perform greater than the sum of their parts. And it really, you know, one of the traditions is the bottle of wine and the team like doing things together. And just, he also has, there's a great story of when, um, when they lost this critical game to the Miami heat that they could have won the championship. One of their players made a mistake, comes in the locker room. This player is like devastated. He comes over and just gives him a hug. Mm-hmm. You know, this player caught and they end up losing the championship that year, but mm-hmm. it was a way of signaling. You're just always part of the team. And yeah. they won five championships over that period. Be, just an incredible. incredible coach, different way of thinking about uh, bringing people back into the fold. Yeah. 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 Well, and also it's so at odds with our, I mean, Woody Hayes, like punched players. <laughs> he um, punched a player on the opposite team. That was why he finally got fired. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so low. I can't believe there's still a statue of him in the front of Ohio. State. I know. Just, after that, 
moment. Well, and, and he would have, I'd, I'd watch, he'd have these like meltdowns yelling at, at players. And the same thing in theater, like Paul Sills, who's founding artistic director, was noted for throwing chairs at actors. Yeah. And it's just like, it, and, and that, that A, probably never really worked, uh, but it's, uh, really doesn't work now. There was another aspect that I really found interesting when you talked about this need to both belong, but also be distinctive. And this is, you know, whether it's like goths or, or, or what have you, that, that it is, it, it would seem contradictory. I, I want to be like, try, but you also want to sort of stand out in a way. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think this is one of the most powerful ideas in our book and one people don't know about. It was created by Marilyn Brewer, who is a professor at Ohio State, one of, one of Dominic, my, our mentors. And she came up with this idea of optimal distinctiveness, that humans have this innate need to belong. And that's something that I think most of us get, and especially during the pandemic where we've been disconnected from people we love and our groups. Um, but she said it has a, there's a countervailing need to be distinctive and stand out. And, you know, we're in America, the, the land of individualism. Um, so people kind of get that here. But she said this is, uh, can be really powerfully met by groups that scratch both those itches. And so some groups are not only fulfill this need to belong, but they're distinctive. They have a special culture or uh, they make you feel really valued, or they really are constantly signaling how they're different from other groups. And so mm -hmm. the example you mentioned of goths is one, like if I'm on the subway in New York and I see these, these kids going to a concert or something and they all seem to look alike, right? They're all dressed the same. Um, or punks were famous for this. And, you, and you, if you were to talk to them, ask, why are you all dressed the same? Uh, or why are you all dressed like that? And they'll say, we're anti-conformists. You know, to them, this is their way of standing out from society. But yeah. to you, you see them as, as all looking the same. And what this signals is this is a really optimally distinctive subculture. And it's very compelling to people. Once you're in one of those, it's very hard to leave it. And, and I'll just say in the book, we talk about companies that have done this. And the best example, I think, is, is Apple, which has taken over the world, but has done all these amazing advertisements, you know, since the 80s about how if you have an Apple, you think different and you're an anti-conformist. And so if I walk to a cafe near my, my house, I'll see just a bunch of people on their iPhones with their MacBooks open, with their iPads. And, I'll do, and they just look like a sea to, to an alien. You'd think these are a sea of conformists, but they all feel like unique little snowflakes. And they've created, and a lot of them, like um, I live pretty close to an Apple store and you can see the lineup when they release a new, release a new product. Everybody just wants to be the first one there. Like they have dedicated hardcore fans in a way most products don't. And I think it's because they've been able to kind of do these two things. It's always been part of the way they've, they've framed who they are. I thought it was also interesting with the design of where they put the Apple logo. Yeah, they put the Apple logo on, on the MacBook. So if it, you'd think if, if I own the MacBook, the Apple would be upright to me when I open it, but yeah. it's not. It looks upside down to me, but when I open it, it looks right side up to everybody staring at me. Yes. And so it's like a bat signal, signaling to everybody like I'm, a, I'm an Apple, I'm a Mac person. I love it. And, and by the way, I'll just say we, we measured this on campus, you know, what identities people have. Dominic did a study on this. And Mac or PC was like the fourth most important identity to like the average college student. Um, so they might be like, I care about my college alma mater. I wear like the t-shirt or jersey, but what, uh, maybe I'm an American or something. And then by the time you go down a couple, it's Mac or PC person. That's just, and maybe Android person now, but it's like a hardcore identity for people. Uh, I'm, I'm in a mixed marriage then because uh, my wife is Mac and I'm PC. So that's tough. We seem to be getting it by. Okay. Okay. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to ask you for a yes and story. But before that, um, I had a call this morning. There's a group that we've worked with over the years called Caring Across Generations. We're trying to change the conversation around aging in America. And they're run by this incredible woman who's my dear friend, Ai Jen Poo. Um, MacArthur Genius Grantee, just the badass human. Um, and they've got this group that's working with them on making sure that they're um, uh, operating with equity at the center of them. And I'm like, I would never even doubt that these people, but I got to thinking about um, what made them so successful. And, and iGen, who's one of their leaders, has a book where she talks about her relationship with her grandparents um, and, and what it meant to be with them in age. And it's an incredible story because it links just generations. It's, so it's about her, but it's about us and it's about groups. And you talk about Howard Gar uh, Gardner saying, quote, what great leaders do, no matter their domain, is tell stories about identity. And when I read that, and then this conversation this morning, I dug into this with a consultant because I'm like, that's the superpower yeah. and, and, and more of it. And because and you start to list examples like, yes, every great, and it doesn't matter if you're a great orator. I mean, that helps, but you don't necessarily have to if you have that conviction and understanding of, of identity. So talk, talk to us about that. 
Yeah, I'll say something. A lot of the principles that we get are basically from just understanding what's human nature. And so we evolved in small groups on the savannah. And the key to human success and why we've taken over the world um, is because we're amazing cooperators. You know, we developed language to communicate, to enrich cooperation. Um, but on our own, we're really flimsy creatures. We're not fast. We're not poisonous. We can't fly. We don't have sharp teeth. And we get picked off pretty quickly on our own. And so what we have as our superpower is cooperation. And so if you think back, you know, to this environment where our brains evolved for almost the entirety of human history until the last couple thousand years, um, is that we didn't have, you know, smartphones or, or ways of travel um, or TVs. Um, what we had was stories. We had ways of communicating, telling stories and dance and building uh, a sense of community around that and identity that cut across generations. And so we still possess that like innate attractiveness to great storytelling. It's why we still love, you know, great movies and, and great mm-hmm. books. Um, but leaders who are really compelling know that. It's almost like they have like this fine-tuned intuition about these stories. And if you look back throughout history, almost all the great speeches by presidents and other major political leaders are telling a story. They have a narrative arc, where we've come from, where we're going. And so that's something that's really fundamental to human nature. And it often gets lost. Like now you can go on to LinkedIn and there's like a million advice for good leaders about like waking up at 4 a.m. or like doing this exercise regime or what books you have to read. Um, but a lot of it is actually becoming really skilled at st- telling a story to all parts of your team that they all feel like something bigger than themselves and they all have an emotional uh, connection to it. And that's core to, that's one of the keys to creating a social glue uh, in organizations and teams uh, in all kinds of environments. I love it. Okay. Uh, we always end the podcast by asking our guests for a yes and story. Do you uh, have one for us? Okay. I have a good one for the pandemic. Great. So, um, the pandemic, I think, has been just a series of people uh, having to go yes and to all kinds of things that they never was agreed with. Um, you know, like working remotely for most of us, suddenly everything was shut down. We had to work remotely. Uh, for me, that meant teaching remotely. So I teach one of the biggest classes at New York University, you know, it's intro- introduction to psychology class with 300 people. Um, and in the fall, this past fall, I was not only teaching this huge class online instead of in person and and struggling to figure out a way to make it interesting and engaging for these students who are often just locked in their dorm room because of all these COVID protocol rules, or or some of them were like calling in from other countries, you know, halfway across the world in the middle of the night to to the lectures. Um, And at the same time I was doing this, I was saying yes and to uh, homeschooling my kids who either the school wasn't open or for a period it, it got shut down. And, you know, my very first lecture, my, my son, who was 10 at the time, was supposed to be like re- doing his homework in the room. You heard me lecturing. He walks over and starts, you know, weighing in on the questions I'm asking my students. So they saw a lot of things they would never otherwise see of a professor. Um, after about a month into the semester, I um, was able to get some childcare at a local kind of uh, daycare for my kids for half a day. And then I'd have to run and pick them up when it ended and then kind of walk them home really quickly and then race up my apartment to my, to my uh, kitchen where I would open my laptop and teach my class. And I was doing that. And, and you know, it's a very tight time frame. and five or 10 minutes off and I'm going to be late for class. Yeah. And so I was racing to get them home. It looked like we we're going to have there. Uh, we we're going to get there with five or 10 minutes to go. So I was kind of breathing easy, got in the elevator, elevator goes up two or three stories. It kind of shudders and it drops, you know, and you kind of feel that thing in your stomach when your elevator drops. Yeah. And all of a sudden it just stopped. And we were stuck, trapped in the elevator. And uh, I was there with my son and my daughter. And she was eight, I think, at the time. And um, the first thing I did was trying to, like, calm them down. And I hit the button to, like, call the door person who was going to call, like, the elevator repair company to send a representative over. So I knew we were stuck there for a while. And my, my, at that point, my daughter starts, like, getting upset and almost crying my son is calm because when you live in New York, you've been, he and I have been stuck in elevators before. Um, but she was calm. We calmed her down. We took some selfies. And then I realized my poor students are not going to know why I'm in class. And there's, you know, it was 360 people in the class. So I mm-hmm. logged in from my iPhone into the class, sent them a message to everybody on the NYU classes uh, link saying, you know, I'm stuck in an elevator, <laughs> uh, no fault of my own. Just hang out in the class. I'll be there as soon as I can. You know, I should be saved, rescued in 20, 30 minutes. And, um, and then time's passing and it's taking really long to get the elevator repairman and, and 20 or 30 minutes passes. And I think my poor students, they've got an exam next week. 
mm-hmm. they're going to be really anxious about it. They're already, you know, at, at their ceiling of anxiety in the yeah. pandemic. So I thought, oh, my goodness, I've got to, I've got to teach the class. Um, so I was able to call in to uh, NYU classes and go to the Zoom link. Um, I had very bad internet reception in my elevator, but I was able to do it. And I call in and I can hear them all gossiping. Like, and, and they're like, was, was the professor going to come back? Did you hear he got stuck in an elevator? Or, no, I didn't hear that. And I come back and I start yelling so they can hear me because it's just a buzz of like 50 people. Yeah. And I said, I'm here. I'm your professor. <laughs> you know, Jay's here. And uh, they all get excited that they're going to have a lecture. And I suddenly realized I, ha- I have n- none of my lecture notes. I, yeah. I don't have my PowerPoint slides. Mm-hmm. And I haven't memorized my lecture. <laughs> and so um, something I'm improving, right? Yeah. So, uh, I, you know, I'm trying to think of all the improvs I went to when I was a student. And I just start talking. And, and I look and I'm talking and I'm trying to remember my lecture and try to tell stories and make it interesting and try to remember what messages I was going to communicate. And I'm looking and all of a sudden I realize my students have, or my, my poor kids have been sitting there in the elevator staring at me like with this like perplexed look on their face. Like, what's going on here? Why is dad doing this? Um and I got going and eventually, you know, after about half an hour of that, the door repair company comes, they let us down. Uh, my one daughter went up front to play with a friend. I went upstairs and I didn't think much about this until um, I went upstairs, fi- finished my lecture with my slides. I didn't think much about it until um, that night. And the, a mom of, of one of the other kids up front texted me and said, Annie told me the story of the elevator. I'm really impressed that like you taught. I don't know how you did it. Um, and I didn't really think much about it. And so I started tweeting this story after yeah. I put my kids to bed and they were unaffected by it. They put them to bed that night. I said, yeah, I was really proud of you guys. And they had nothing to say about it. They're like, okay, don't worry about it, dad. I tweeted the story and it went viral. And um, it was probably the most shared thing I've ever posted on social media. It got all this weird uh, media attention. Mm-hmm. And the funniest thing was my students loved the story. And in fact, at the end of the day, some of them posted my email on like Instagram and it got like 20,000 shares. They became well-known because they were the kids in like the elevator class. Mm-hmm. Um, and the end of the year, my evaluations were better than I've ever had the, the, the comments I got from the students. And I think it was because, you know, almost like this identity leadership thing. In this case, it was unintentional. It's because I was going through what they was go- where they were going through yeah. at that moment. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my life was disrupted just like theirs. And we were all kind of in it together, just struggling to do mm-hmm. what we could Mm-hmm. to make the most of it to get through. And I think they just had a deep appreciation or maybe felt like, you know, professors are often at a different level than students yep. and our lives are more cushy than theirs. And for, for that, for that class, they felt like we were kind of going through it together and it was unvarnished and real. And, and that they, we, we built a kind of a shared identity around that. And I, I, I emailed them all and said, I want to meet you now. Once you come back to, to classes this semester, I never yeah. got to meet them. And we have this weird shared bond over this now. Oh, I love that. And, and my wife's a professor and, and our neighbors are, um, are, are uh, both teachers and uh, Josh uh, teaches middle school math in a very underserved part of Chicago. And our power went out and we're, on, we're like two houses away. And so he went to the car with the iPhone and the computer and he, and, and he starts driving around and he's like, so they're looking at him driving and they're like, what is going on? But then he starts playing games of like, okay, look at this and starts doing math games with going around Chicago. And he's like, and now that is what he does. So it's oh, like, wow. it's, it's a classic make mistakes work for you improv moment. It is, like, it is, it is improv. All of us were doing this. Yes. And yeah. I had the best comment I saw on Twitter about my post. Someone quote mm-hmm. tweeted it and they said, um, the elevator is all of us or sorry, the elevator is the pandemic and Jay is all of us which is oh. we're all just going through this together and we're making it up as we go. And we all just are yes ending it and we yep. don't know where it's going to end mm-hmm. and we're just doing our best. And I just feel like, especially teachers, Oh man, my heart goes out to all these teachers uh, trying to figure this out on the fly this year. And it's just chaos and they just have to keep a happy face. And they've been so amazing. My kids are, I just can't extend my gratitude more to all the educators who've, who've done way more than I have uh, yep. with harder, harder audiences than I've had to deal with. And they should all have their pay doubled. Uh, the, the book is The Power of Us, Harnessing Our Shared Identities to Improve Performance, Increase Cooperation, and Promote Social Harmony. Uh, Jay, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Kelly. This was a blast. Getting the SAN is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor and producer is L.F. Garris. We get support at the Second City from Jenny Crowley, Abby Bumbledare, Mike Farinaccio, and Colleen Faye. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. 
If you have questions, guest ideas, or if you want more information on working with Second City Works, you can go to www.secondcityworks.com, or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com. Survive